So you might be sitting here, what exactly is this workshop about? I kind of get the other topics, but this seems super general, super kind of vague. What do you mean a culture of discipling? Well, there's probably a number of reasons why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here and you're a young believer or a new Christian, and you're starting to pick up you can't live the Christian life on your own. You're starting to realize, ah, I still sin as a Christian. I don't understand my Bible. I've never been a part of a church, or if I have, I've never understood how this is supposed to work, but I see the need to be discipled. These talks may speak to you in some way. You might be here this morning, you're saying, well, I'm not a new Christian. I would consider myself someone who's been walking with the Lord for quite some time. I love my Bible. I have rich, quiet times. Me and Jesus have a wonderful time in the morning. And yet, I'm not sure how to begin discipling relationships. I understand inductive Bible studies. I go to those. I benefit. I understand the Sunday morning gathering and the Sunday evening gathering. But what does this look like Monday to Saturday? What does it look like sitting across the table from someone at a restaurant or coffee or in the hallway? How do I get on a more personal level with another Christian to help them follow Jesus? You could also be here, as two brothers mentioned, and our own lay elders and myself. You're a pastor of a church. And you want to see the bulk of your church, in fact, every member of your church, being disciple-making disciples, where carrying out the one another's of the New Testament is normal for that local church's culture and not the anomaly. So in many church contexts, I grew up in many of them like that, good preaching, sound Bible studies, but there was always like a pocket of people in the church were known as kind of the radical Christians, and really all that just simply meant they were normal, real Christians. And they looked at, they really got as radical because their Christian life was more than just Sunday. It spilled into every day of the week. So that might be you here today as a pastor or one aspiring to, and you want to see your church and not to be an anomaly for a radical few, but the majority of the church uh, doing spiritual good to one another. And so with those uh, possibilities of who you might be, let me be very clear about what this workshop is designed to do and what is it not about. So this morning, this workshop is not uh, aiming to teach you how to do a small group or to lead a Bible study. We're not getting into Greek and Hebrew, verb tenses. We're not looking at church history, homiletics. We're not looking how to preach a sermon. That is not the aim of this particular workshop. Those have wonderful places to do that in different contexts. This particular workshop is not for that. The aim of this workshop is also not uh, the how to start more programs in your church or how to see your church grow in numbers. That's not the aim of this workshop. If God blesses your church with more converts and more disciples, praise be to God. But this is not a strategy workshop on how to make your church bigger on the membership roles. The primary aim of this workshop is to remind each one of us of the tremendous responsibility that King Jesus has given every disciple who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me say that again. This workshop is about Christians like you and I understanding the tremendous responsibility from King Jesus to make disciples who follow Jesus with all of their life, with God's word as our foundation 
and church membership as the way that God guides us with who those other followers of Jesus are. So if you're thinking through what passage of scripture could be useful to help me think about how am I doing this well or not in my own life? How should my church be thinking about how to do this well in our own congregation? So if you have your Bibles really quick, this will serve as a framework for Deepak's talks so that you have, I'm not going to give any kind of exegesis of this, it's just some themes that are going to pop out. Ephesians 4, you can use the chair Bibles provided if you don't have one with you. Ephesians chapter 4, of course, those of you who are familiar with Ephesians, it's a New Testament epistle written by Paul. In the first half of Ephesians, similar to Colossians, similar to Romans, he lays out doctrine, he lays out theology, he lays out what God has done for us in Christ through the church in chapters 1 to 3, and then in chapters 4 to 6, he speaks about the therefore. How shall I live in light of what God has done for me in Christ? Look with me in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. This is God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So if you're a member of another church or pastor of another church, this is God's blueprint and God's will for every church, that every church has been blessed with at least one of the gifts from Jesus. And these here are pastor teachers. They're not the only gifts God gives to his church, but they are the primary spiritual leadership, elders, overseers, pastors, to equip or supply the saints for the work of ministry. And what is the outflow when a church understands its mission, pastors understand their calling? You will see there, Christians are no longer babies, children, tossed to and fro by every little thing they hear on YouTube 
every little thing they hear on Fox or CNN, every little thing they hear at a so-called Christian bookstore, and yet they're firmly rooted in the truth. And then they speak the truth and love to one another. And look what verses, verse 16 says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's how God is going to build his church. It's through every member understanding they have been gifted, filled with the Spirit, entrusted with the good deposit of God's Word to speak the truth and love to one another so that we are built up. This is his disciple-making game plan. We don't need to reinvent it. We don't need to um, get overly creative. God's told us about unity. He's told us about spiritual maturity. He's told us how to do this to one another. So before we begin, I'm going to ask us to go in prayer, to ask God for help, and that God would use Deepak to help us be more faithful to this task. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Lord, we are more loved than we will ever understand. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this not of ourselves, it is your doing that you have worked by your spirit in our hearts. Lord, we pray this morning that whether we are members of CCBC or other local churches, Lord, we pray that we would be refreshed and reminded of the awesome privilege it is to be used by you to build up another believer, to be used by you to see your plan of your church being built up all around the world, but in a local expression here in the Barling and Fort Smith area. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would use our brother Deepak from his experiences, both his successes and mistakes, uh, his studies, and all the wisdom you've entrusted to him. Lord, we pray you would use him this morning to further equip me and the elders and the other members of our church and Ben Laramore's church and Ben Seawall's church and each one of us to be more faithful to this awesome task. Lord, we pray you would receive the honor and glory this morning for yourself. We pray that we would love the word, we would love Jesus, and we would love one another better as a result of our time together. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, and if you've got your booklet, we're going to turn to page five. You'll see the start of the outline for our time together. I want to start by giving a common false assumption that I think Christians make about professional help. And here's the false assumption. 
Many Christians think that discipleship, that is their spiritual growth, and the care of Christians is a responsibility of professional pastors and counselors and not the congregation. Many Christians think that discipleship, that is their own spiritual growth, is the responsibility of professional pastors and counselors and not the congregation. So let me start by telling you a story of a young lady that was a part of our congregation many years ago. She was being discipled by a, 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 a wife and a mom who was taking care of her in the Word with her, being, was very involved in her life. And on the weekends, she would come over and hang out with the family when she was having a tough time. She would stay over for the whole weekend, hanging out with them. And at some point, as her life started to take a difficult turn, the wife called an evangelical psychiatrist and asked a really important question. She asked, to what extent should I be involved in this young lady's life, especially now that her problems are getting more severe? What did the doctor say? Take a guess. What did the doctor say? He said, stay out. Pray for her, but aside from that, leave it to the professionals to take care of her. Now, is that right? Now, I have no, nothing against doctors. <laughs> I, 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 I trained as a doctor for many years. Uh, I'm Indian, so every other cousin is a doctor. <laughs> so so I, I grew up in a subculture of doctors all the time. I'm a big fan of medical help, and yet, is it the responsibility of professionals to take care of the members when they're having problems? Or should the members, the everyday Christians of a local church, being invested in each other's lives and willing to partake in some of the more difficult things as Christians are struggling through their life. Well, you can see where I'm going to go with our time together. I think it's a fundamental responsibility of the congregation to disciple and care for one another with the Word. I, I think it's a responsibility of every Christian in a local church to have a responsibility to be invested in the other members of that church. Uh, well, where, where do we get this? Where do we get this from Scripture? Well, I, I think it's in the Word. I'm going to explain that to you in just a moment, where we see this in the Bible. But I think it's a fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian because Scripture traces it out for us. Now, there's a lot of places I could go in Scripture to describe this, but I think the simplest way to explain how we see this in the Bible is simply looking at the one another passages in Scripture. The one another texts in Scripture trace out the relationship of one believer to another. So not, not a pastor to believers, not a, a professional counselor to believers, not a doctor to believers, but one Christian to another Christian. And this is what the relationship look like. And so uh, you, you see there listed the different texts. If you want to, you don't have to turn there, just listen as I read them to you about the responsibility of Christians to one another. First one, John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
than Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Then Romans chapter 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Then Romans chapter 15. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. That's Romans chapter 15 again. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Then Ephesians chapter 4, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. In Ephesians 4 again, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So what are these passages saying? Well, they're speaking to Christians, and the general direction of all these texts are to oblige Christians to be devoted to each other, to honor each other, to accept each other, to be patient with each other, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be forgiving one another, and even to instruct one another. I think if you listen to all those texts and see what they're saying, it's clear that in Scripture, Christians have a responsibility to be invested in each other's lives. Christians have a responsibility to to be involved in each other's lives. We have a responsibility to care for one another, as you see the way the Word traces that out. Now, making disciples and counseling the Word to one another is supremely the work of the church, not just professional parachurch workers. Mind you, I'm very grateful for dis- professional disciplers and counselors. So I, I, I was, I was uh, in, in, in my own storyline, in college, I arrived at a secular university as a brand new Christian. I, I moved into a dormitory of a thousand freshmen, Thurston Hall, corner of F Street in Northwest DC. And the one Bible study in the entire dormitory, by God's kindness, was right across the hallway. I couldn't avoid it as a new believer. And so Edwin Weaver was a senior, a big burly guy, uh, led that Bible study. And halfway through that year in that Bible study, Edwin said, someone needs to disciple you. (laughs) Someone needs to to spend time one-on-one with you in the Word. No one had ever said that to me. So every Friday, the one morning I could sleep in, at 7.30, I met Edwin in the student center, and we studied the Bible together. And, and, and God bless him, he took me through the Word that semester and taught me how to read the Scriptures, how, how to get invested in the Word, how to understand God's Word. And now I have a long line of men who have done that for me over the course of my Christian life. I could trace year after year of the different men that God has put in my life to help me study the Word. Well, wonderful, isn't it, that God provides men and women to disciple us in the Word and care for us. Now, then I go off and I do training as a professional counselor. And now I do that, you know, Monday through Friday, 8.30 till 5.30. I'm meeting with person after person after person, pouring into their life. So whether it's a campus worker who does this as, as a parachurch ministry, whether it's a professional counselor who comes alongside people who are hurting, we're really grateful for people who dedicate their lives to pour into others and and take the time to do that. And yet, and yet, if you think about it, 
oftentimes those kinds of ministries rise up in the gap where the church has often failed. So just take college ministry, for example. If you think of Reform University Fellowship or Campus Crusade for Christ or InterVarsity Christian Fellowship or Navigators, you can, you can mention all these great parachurch ministries to college campuses that came up and came to life in the 20th century. I think often they came to life because the church failed to get to the campus and to do that kind of discipling work for college students. So what do we want? I, I think the church needs to be the, the context for which we're doing this kind of discipling and counseling ministry with one another. The church should be the normative place for Christian relationships and Christian discipling. Consequently, I want to contend that the church is the normative place for people to work out their problems. We want to face our difficulties in the context of a loving community. Now, when I was out in the lobby yesterday, walking through, notice the church covenant on the wall. I love that. The church covenant that's out there that traces out the obligations that you have as members to one another, the responsibility you have that you've committed to one another as church, members of a local church. Well, what's a church covenant? A church covenant simply traces out the obligations of Christians towards one another in a local church community. And if you listen to some of the lines in a typical church covenant. Now, is the church covenant similar to ours? Okay, so let me read some of the lines from our church covenant, which are actually very similar to the ones that you have uh, here. It says, uh, we, we'll work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We'll walk together in brotherly love as become the members of a Christian church. And we'll exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We'll rejoice in each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burden and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from a symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. Now you hear that. You hear how the covenant traces out the responsibility to care for each other and be invested in each other. And if you, if you ever read that covenant when you walk in, or you recite that covenant to each other as a church, you're actually articulating the responsibility that we're describing here today, this morning. We're just doing it in more detail this morning, tracing out what exactly that looks like. Well, a catchphrase that we often use in our church to describe this, you'll see that bullet point there, the culture of discipling. What is a culture of discipling? Well, by culture, I'm talking about it's the whole personality of the congregation is one of making and shepherding disciples. It's our hope that every member catches this vision of this kind of care, that they would have a personal responsibility to care for others within the church. Now, why did I lay it first out in Scripture? Because I think it's important to understand this from the Word. Why did I trace it out in the church covenant? Because it, it, it's a commitment you've made in your own local church to have this relationship with one another. But a culture is one in which 
it's not just a few people who do this. It's actually everybody gets this. If most of the church understand what this looks like, it changes the basic DNA of a church. Because it's no longer simply the paid pastoral staff, or it's no longer just the really mature people in the church who are doing this. Everybody understands this is a part of what it means to be in a local church together. It's a fundamental part of what we do in the church. So it's not a program where I have to sign a dotted line. But because I'm a Christian, I understand this is what it looks like to live out the Christian life. This is what it means to be a faithful believer. So this is ingrained into the DNA of the church. This is how we live as Christians with one another. And so I hope you get to have Blake for years, for decades. But if Blake were to walk out and get hit by a bus, I hope it doesn't happen. (laughs) What I don't want you to understand is this is just some program that Blake came up with. What I want you to understand that this is what it means to be a Christian. So that long after the Lord takes Blake or takes me or anybody else who ever speaks about this, you understand from the Word, most importantly, and you understand from the church covenant that traces out this obligation that this is what Christians do. This is what it looks like to be a Christian in this fallen world. So how how do we trace this out? Well, we trace it out by teaching the expectation when new members come and join a church. So a church covenant class teaches this obligation to new Christians as they come, but in our church, when we do a membership interview, one of the things we do in the middle of the interview is we ask, I explain to them, in order to be a Christian, we understand you should be discipled and you should be discipling others. It's a part of what it means to be a Christian in this church. And I look at them in the face and I say, are you willing to do that? And you know, the introverts squirm up a little bit. <laughs> they just get, it feels awkward for them in that moment. And then the extroverts are like, I'm all about it. Let let me at them. (laughs) But it doesn't matter what your personality style is. This is a part of what it means to be a Christian, which is why I looked them in the face and explained to them their obligation and say, are you willing to do it? But then you also help others catch this by simply experiencing the fruit of someone else pouring into you. So I, I, I had a pastor who had heard me do a similar talk like this, and he went back and he helped his elder start thinking about this, and then he paired up an elder with a brand new convert in their church. And that elder started meeting up with that young guy. And then he called the elder to ask how it's going, and the elder said, I don't know what I'm doing. And he realized he had never invested in his elders. Nobody had ever discipled them. So that guy didn't know what it was like because he had never caught the vision for what discipling could be because nobody had ever personally discipled him. So how do I do discipling? Well, I look at the long line of men who are standing right behind me, what they had done with me, and I do simply a lot of what are the things that they have done for me. I, I replicate the many ways that men have poured into me, and I do that for young men that are involved in my life. But, you know, we, we teach the members how to handle the Word. I love that Blake went to Ephesians 4, and he began to explain it to you this morning. I love that you get expositional sermons every Sunday. I love that 
being upstairs in, in, in the Bible study class for women. I love that. I walked in and there's the word all over the wall. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're reference material right there on all the desks. I love that we're carefully studying the word to understand what God has to say. So that we're understanding how to apply the scriptures and how to do it carefully as we care for other people. So we want to do it thoughtfully and carefully, but we want to apply the Word to other people's lives. We, we, we don't want to just store it up. So you know what a hoarder is? You ever been in a hoarder's house? It's overrun, isn't it? <laughs> it it's, sometimes if you're in a, in a full-blown hoarder, it's got wall-to-wall stuff everywhere you look. It's almost disgusting to walk in there <laughs> because there are things probably walking around in there that shouldn't be alive in a house. <laughs> Well, we never want to hoard God's Word. What do we want? We want to be able to give it out. We want to be able to faithfully apply it to those who are coming in, in our life. So I study the Word in order to give it out to other people. I study the Word so I can apply it to other people's lives. I study the Word so I can be faithful in helping other people understand what God has to say um, in the moment. Well, the centerpiece of a culture of discipling is actually the members teaching one another with God's Word. It's the members being involved in each other's lives. So you as a member are called to counsel the Word with one another. Whether you realize it or not, you're a soldier in God's army, and you work on the front lines of a war. So I like using a war analogy to describe what discipling really is. So the front line of the battle are the conversations that happen every day in your life. Their lunch meetings, they're texting with one another, they're picking up your cell phone and calling someone, they're meeting up with someone for lunch, they're the Bible studies, they're their conversations after church. They're all the things you do in the regular Christian life as you communicate, hang out, talk with one another. In the front lines, you encounter a lot of hard things. You just run into life in a fallen world. And so you have a friend who had a hard week, or you have a friend who gets sick and has been diagnosed with cancer. You know, you have a friend whose marriage is not going so well. Or you have a friend who might get fired from work. Whatever it is, you run into these things because this is life in a fallen world. And you, what do you do? You talk to people. You have conversations. You text with each other. You pray for each other. Well, this is what it means to be a Christian and a member of a church. This is the normal conversations you have in the Christian life. Well, one step back from the front lines are the godly men and women of the faith who take time to pour themselves into younger believers. I'm going to call them the captains and generals of the faith. These are the older, more mature believers who pour into the younger believers, and every church has those rich relational resources that God provides to help believers, especially the younger ones, grow up in the faith. But in the very back of, of, of a battle... In the very back of a war is, you know what sits in the far back? Did anybody like me watch the reruns of MASH in the 70s and the 80s? It's the MASH unit. You know, the medical staff are, are, are not on the front lines, they're in the back. Why is that? Because the soldiers, when they get wounded, maimed, beaten up, they're sent to the back lines to the MASH unit to get patched up, to, to get treatment, to get help. And what happens in a Christian war 
in a Christian war, you're not sent home. You're sent back to the front lines to do those daily conversations and walk through things with other people. Well, notice, who's in the front lines? It's not the MASH unit. You know who's in the MASH unit? It's those gifted people who are the, the, the mature people that God calls out in order to invest in the others. The people who are, you know, the, often the pastors or the counselors or the parachurch workers that God uses, especially poor in. Well, God might call out some people with special gifts of discipling. I mean, that's what I do. That's what, what, what my mentor told me 20 years ago. This is what you should do with your life. And so as a first child, Asian American, I said, okay, that's what I'll do. <laughs> 20 years later, here I am. <laughs> And yet, I'm not the one at the front lines. I'm the Ephesians 4 pastor equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry so that those who are sitting at the front lines can do their work day to day in pouring into other believers. So you sit at the front lines in daily conversations and trying to minister to others. Now, you'll see there that that subsection at the bottom page 5, it says, I can't do this. The normal reaction to people as I begin to trace this out is they think about all the things they encounter in a fallen world, you know, marital conflict, depression, difficult guidance issues, sexual temptation, eating disorders, people struggling with long-term illness, you know, cancer, and you think, well, I'm not equipped to do this. That's why they pay people like you. You're the one who shouldn't be having these conversations. I don't know how to handle a conversation like that. Well, if you're a Christian and you live faithfully according to God's Word, in most every situation, there's something you can do to help. In almost every situation you encounter where there's suffering in a fallen world, there is something you can do to help. At the very least, you can pray. But my guess, there is much more than just simply that. So I'm going to take a generic situation, a situation where, let's say, a young couple comes to you and they're having a lot of marital conflict. So in our congregation, our average age is 30. We're dominated by 20 and 30-year-olds. So if you're in your 40s, you're married, you own a home, you have children, you're basically an elder in our church. (laughs) So what do we end up doing? We do a lot of counseling with couples in the first few years in the marriage because they're struggling with how to handle conflict. It's a normal thing to teach young couples how to do that. So let's just say a young couple comes to you, whether it's the husband or the wife, and they confess, we're having a lot of conflict, it's gotten really bad, we're not doing well in handling it. We're not sure what best to do. I want you to think about, I want you to think about three things. What would you ask them? Where would you go in Scripture? And what counsel or advice would you give them? What would you ask them? What questions would you ask? Where would you go in Scripture? And what counsel would you give them? I'm going to give you just a few minutes to turn to the people who are sitting with you. And I want you to take just a few minutes and talk to each other about this hypothetical generic couple, and what would you, what would you, I want you to answer those three questions. What would you ask? Where would you go in the Bible? And what would you say? Take a moment now and just talk with each other about what would you do in that situation.
Okay, let's think about together. If, we, if you have a mic or two, I'm going to call on some folks. We have some mic runners. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've got, uh, let's first talk about what would you want to ask. Raise your hand and give me your name when you give me an answer. So who's, who wants to give us some suggestions about what you want to ask? All right. And Pastor Ben, what, what would you want to ask? Um, well, if, if they confessed, uh, like we're having a fight, I would really want to make sure I understood what they meant by that. Um, so I'd want to say, well, can you define that for me? Um, oh, good, are, Ben. You're looking at my notes from this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you didn't know. That's, we're going to talk about that in, in the next hour. Okay. But, like, good. you know, are you, are you just, uh, does this include yelling or are objects being thrown? What do you mean by this? Yeah. Yeah. So, good. Define your terms. We're going to talk about that in a little while later. What, what exactly do you mean? You said we're having a bad fight. Good. What else do you want to ask? And don't look down at your booklet. <laughs> Tell me your name. Uh, Lori. Um, a question we talked about is asking, are you wanting help or are you just wanting to vent? Yeah, good. Are you wanting help or how many people come forward and just, they want to vent? They don't want to do anything about it, but they just need somewhere to, and there's a place for being able to express your frustrations, but we're here to figure out how to help you change. Good, Lori. Great suggestion. Any other questions? Yes, in the back. Here, wait for the mic. Oh, here comes the mic. I'm Roy. Tell me your name. My I'm Roy. Uh, my question would be somewhere in this in the beginning to me, and I can be wrong, but you know, I'd like to know where they feel like they stand with the Lord. First. Yeah, good. That's a great question. Uh, where are you do How are you doing spiritually? Yeah. Where, where is your relationship? Where is, how's your relationship with the Lord doing? Where are you at right now? Yeah, and we'll talk about... There's a connection between the vertical and the horizontal. I mean, all life is connected to the vertical, and so how you're doing with God is going to affect how you live in your marriage. And so that's an excellent question. Now you see some of the other questions I had there under the ask category. How long has the conflict been going on? When does it typically happen? Describe your last fight. You know, good to get your hands around the specifics. I, I'm, I, I like the details, so I get a feel for what's going on. Uh, do, do you enter discussions with a mentality that you're right and the goal is to convince your spouse that you're right and they're wrong? Uh, and then asking questions that go after the heart. What were you desiring? What were you hoping for? What were you coveting? How, how did you desire to lead in the conflict or did what you do ruin the conversation? Okay, where do you want to go to in the Bible? Let's get a couple of suggestions. Where do you want to go to in Scripture? Say it again. Ephesians in general, Ephesians 5 would be a great text, particularly on marriage. Good. Where else? 1 Peter? It's not that good. Um, I was thinking 1 Peter because it just it goes back to who you need to be as, as a Christian. Yeah. It goes back to the heart and then leads you up into submission to your to your husbands and just submission in general. Yeah. But yeah. the whole context of First Peter is rolling and reminding you of who you are. Yeah. Uh, because I think 
you'll obviously get lost in that um, conflict of what's going on in your life, and there's a heart issue. Yeah, and tell me your name, by the way. Jeremy. Jeremy. Yeah, excellent. First Peter deals with submission to authority, including First Peter 3, in terms of wives and husbands. But then, you know, not just wives, flip it over. First Peter 3, 7, husbands understanding their wives uh, and the importance of that. So, you know, that's a great text to be thinking about. Good. Where else do you want to go in the Bible to help them? My name's Donna, and I was uh, just reading this yesterday, Philippians 2, Jesus' example of humility, because yeah. most conflicts are about pride. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful example of Philippians 2, just as Jesus gave up his life for us, uh, and, and, and so therefore we should also live out that life of humility, and, and a lot of conflict has to deal with our pride, <laughs> uh, our self-centeredness. And so learning to serve others. Good. Well, um, the, the text I want to take us through is James 4 in just a second and thinking about that. But just let's do that last part. What do you want to say? What do you want to say to them? If you're just going to, what's your tweetable statement to them? <laughs> what do you want to say to them if you're going to speak in? Pastor Ben. I don't know if the, this isn't really what I would say, but we were, we were talking about what we wouldn't say. Uh, we wouldn't say, just stop it. Get your act together. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, just stop it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and if you've ever seen the Bob Newhart video, <laughs> it's a Bob Newhart pretending to be a counselor. And all he says in the session is just stop it. <laughs> that's, that's the extent of his his, uh, his counseling technique, um, so to speak. Well, yeah, so um, let's think about Ephesians, uh, James 4, 1. What causes fights and quarrels among us? Is it not the desires that battle within you? So what's the idea there? If we just, one example of a text that we're thinking through, James helps us understand our, our, our tendency when we fight is to make the other person the enemy. You, you're the one who's messing this up, you're the one who's causing this. You're the one who's wrong. And my whole goal is to prove to you that I'm right and you're wrong. Most of us have an inner lawyer dwelling within us. You know, we built up the ar argument when we logically think through what, why we're right, and that's what pours out. When in fact, what we need to do is to kill that inner lawyer. <laughs> James says th the problem is not the other person. The problem is the passions and desires that rule your heart. So slow down, stop staring at the other person, and look at your own heart. That's what I'm often going to say to a couple as they're showing up with marital conflict. I'm going to get them to describe to me what's going on, but I'm going to say, what did you want out of this? Because I want to begin to understand what was the war that was driving them in the middle of that fight. So I, I, I want to tell them about the importance of looking at their own heart and not making the spouse their enemy. And right there, with that one simple step, I've used Scripture to take the focus off of the place where they're incorrectly focused, which is their spouse or their roommate or their parent or their best friend, and instead focus it on their own heart in helping them to begin to look inward rather than outward in regards to that conflict. 
Now, you know, you, you all uh, great, gave, gave great answers. You gave great suggestions in regards to what we could do in that regard. You don't need a professional counseling degree in order to help a couple who's struggling with conflict. <laughs> you, you, what, what you need is a love for the Word, a willingness to step in, and for most of us, there's a degree of fear in trying to get involved in other people's messes. And so we need a little bit of confidence in order to encourage us to step in and give it a try. So with the Spirit and the Word working within and the encouragement to have confidence to try, there's a lot you can do to help out other people. God has given everything you need through His Word and Spirit to help others. So don't be scared. Instead, trust that you can have not confidence in yourself, but confidence that God will work through you, through His Word and through His Spirit, to help others as they're struggling in this fallen world. Now, I'm putting a lot of emphasis on you as the members getting involved in each other's lives and helping each other out, and yet a lot of people at this point will say, okay, is it all on me? (laughs) What are we talking about here? Is it fundamentally my responsibility, you're saying, in cleaning up all these messes? Well, no, I want to make a few caveats. So for clarity's sake, let me just clarify, and you see this under when do we seek out others. What I'm not saying is that you have to sort through other people's problems on your own, and what I'm not saying is that you as a member have to deal with this without any help, and what I'm not saying is that the pastors don't really care about shepherding and counseling for other members. And what I'm not saying is that the pastors expect you, the members, to fix each other's problems. No, in fact, God has given shepherds, pastors, elders to do the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ in order to equip them to do what God has called them to do. And so pastors, elders, and shepherds are a great gift. You know, if, if you run into a hard situation, you don't know what to do. One of my favorite calls as a pastor is when a member calls up and says, I'm ministering to so-and-so, and for example, I don't know where to go in the Bible. And I just need help knowing how to build a bridge from their problem into the Scriptures. Or I'm ministering from so-and-so, and I don't know what questions to ask. I just know how to dig into their life. And so help me to understand what I should be asking. And then I say, okay, do you need my help? And they say, no, actually, I don't. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Go at it, church member. Go after them. Care well for them. And let me just mentor you in understanding how how to do this well. But there are other times where they'll say, yes, I need your help. And I said, great, let's just jump into that trench together and, and help together build into that Christian. And what am I able to do? I'm able to model for them what it looks like to to minister Scripture and ask questions. But what you don't want to do is just simply feel like I need to fix other people's problems or that I'm embarrassed to talk about this in front of the pastor or the pastor doesn't really care. I've actually had time with each one of your elders. I've had a chance to get to know them a little bit. I know especially knowing Blake your elders want to be involved in your life. So, you know, a lot of families have cultures where they think our junk just stays with us. 
You, just, you, don't, just, you don't tell other people. You don't, let, you don't let other people into our business. Well, that's not Christian. <laughs> you want to be a Christian, that's not what it means to be a Christian. In a fallen world, you need help from a gospel community. <laughs> you, you can't do this on your own. So therefore, you need to be willing to open up. And so you should let the pastors in. Having done this a number of years, people let problems go far too long before they're humble enough to call up a pastor. And if they had been humble enough to call a lot earlier, the pastor could have done a lot more to help. And I, 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 I mean, I don't have much hair left, but I pull out whatever hair is left. <laughs> when, when it comes to certain situations, I think, if you had just told me six months ago, there's a lot more we could have done in helping out. So whether it's small or large, show humility in letting an elder know about the situation, at the very least so they can pray. They may not have to do much more than that, but if there is more required, letting them come alongside of you and being invested in your life. So just to set set out some parameters, uh, if you flip over to that next page, on page 7, when, when should I call a pastor? Just to know some of the things, some of the situations, some of the problems we might face when it is really important to get a pastor involved. This is not a comprehensive list, but just merely some guidelines to, to, to understand when. If a person's problem is significant and no one or very few folks know about it, you can either encourage them to come speak with the pastor or even better, you can volunteer to go tell the pastor for them or go with them to see the pastor. You know how comforting it is? I mean, I did this more recently. A young lady who was coming out of very difficult situations, and she was struggling to come tell one of the pastors. So her discipler said, I'll go with you. (laughs) Let's go sit in front of the pastor together. And she, she didn't say anything. The discipler just sat there, but the mere comfort of her presence while this young lady was beginning to explain hard things I think it's exactly what you need to do to get them in the office so the pastor can help. Or if, if you're feeling overwhelmed with the problem, and you don't know how to handle it. Or if you don't know where to go in Scripture and how to apply the Scriptures to this particular problem. Or if you're scared that this person is going to do physical or spiritual harm to themselves or others, and you feel like you need help in slowing them down. Or if you feel like someone's out of control with their sin. Or if you feel like the person's sin is very public and scandalous and the pastors need to know about it. Or if you want guidance on how to just simply help someone in the midst of their trouble. Now keep in mind if someone comes to you and they say to you, I'm willing to tell you this, but you've got to promise not to tell anyone else. You should never promise absolute confidentiality. You should never promise absolute confidentiality. I understand that the culture out there expects that that's what you'll do, especially if you're a professional. But I also understand from 1 Corinthians 5 or Matthew 18, if someone's in unrepentant sin, we need to be able to bring in a second witness. And if they're not willing to repent of their sin, ultimately it has to be able to be told to the church. And so, therefore, I don't want my hands tied from the very beginning. If someone says, hey, 
you got to promise I won't, you won't tell anyone. I'll say, I can't promise you that. I will promise you I'll be really careful with whatever information you tell me, but if you are going to be a harm to yourself or if you're in unrepentant sin, eventually I'm going to have to tell others for your own sake. And, you know, if in D.C., in a church full of lawyers, if I can pull that off, well, then certainly you can pull it off. (laughs) I've never had anyone walk out the door at that point when I've had that part of the conversation. So if you talk to one of your elders, remember you're not trying to pass off a problem to them. You're trying to stay involved. And yet, what a wonderful thing to get the elders also involved especially in some of these situations that I traced out for you a moment ago. Well, wrapping this first talk up, the the story I began with, that young lady who was struggling and the wife who was investing in her life. It's wonderful to be able to say on this side of, of the story that in those difficult years, it was not just the wife who was a tremendous help or wasn't myself as one of the staff pastors who I think made the difference, Actually, as she began to get other people involved and tell other people about her problems, it was a wonderful thing to watch how the church began to rally around her. And I really felt like after a few difficult years, the biggest difference was she had a gospel community that helped her through the most difficult years of her life. Well, what's my hope for you? My hope for you is that you would understand the responsibility as a Christian to be willing to step out of that comfort zone and step into some of the hard things in other people's lives. And not to do it by yourself, to get others involved like pastors, but to be willing to be a part of the hard things that require us to persevere through sin and suffering for the sake of God's glory. So let me stop there and take a few questions if you have anything from this first talk about the culture of discipling and being invested in other people's lives. Any questions for Deepak? Any encouragements, questions, or clarifications? Roy in the back. Uh, Is there a time if you've been meeting with someone for quite some time uh, that continues to not do or be encouraged by things you're told them to do, is there a time that you just say, I just don't think I should be dealing anymore with you if you're not willing to, to help along that line? Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent question, Roy. So the, I think there is. Um, it, it, it's obviously different in all kinds of situations. So there are some situations for their own sake I need to persevere because they, they need the help and they don't realize they need the help and I need to stick with it because eventually they will come to realize that it was better for me to stick with it. But there are some situations where, you know, I've got, I've got, I personally, I have all kinds of people banging on my door wishing that they had some time because they desperately need help. And so if I got somebody over here who is unwilling to face the problem, is unwilling to change, is unwilling to do any of the work that it takes, you start adding up those unwillings, eventually we get to a place, and I'm, I'm willing to persevere for quite a while. <laughs> so I'm not talking about just a conversation or two. I'll stick with people for months. And, and I probably stick with people longer than I should. And yet there is a time where I think if, if you add up enough of those unwillings, 
And it ends up being they just want to vent about it. And they're unwilling to listen to the word. They're not listening to any counsel. They're not making any efforts to change. You know, start adding into they're not showing up at church. They're not returning your calls. You just add, add up the list. Yeah, I think there's a time where you say, I'm just not simply going to meet up with you for you to just vent. Yeah, I think, Roy, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. There's that, that posture we should have to bear with the weakest of the bunch. And even if their spiritual growth is slow, as far as God can sustain you and have others stay with them, there's a difference between slow growth and no growth. And I think you have to have those categories in the mind that if the person actually is getting worse, the heart's becoming hard, they, they actually might be duplicitous. They're lying to you. They're, they're this pretense. Uh, it's really helpful to have other brothers and sisters to come alongside and say, hey, brother, I think you've been having the wool pull over your head. This person's not actually who you think they are. And so I think having the community of faith kind of see it affirming slow growth you bear it up, you persevere, but I think the no growth or a hardened heart over a long period of time is something we all have to be very discerning over. So counselors love 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. It's like one of the, you, you, you list 10 verses, on that's one of, the, one of the verses, so, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Yeah, so we're trying to figure out which one are you? <laughs> uh, and if you are the weak, then I can keep persevering with you because you need my help. But if, if you are the idol, then, you know, at, at some point I may, if you're not heeding my counsel, I may need to just say we're going to stop. Good question, Roy. Any other questions for Deepak? Deepak, I appreciate you alluding to that wartime language, because in Ephesians 4, equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, what is the work of ministry? What are acts of service? It's in the same letter as Ephesians 6. Mm. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may battle not with flesh and blood, but against the principal powers of the air, the spiritual forces of evil. And so that's why it's so important to belong to a local church, because on Sunday morning, it's not merely a pep rally it's getting equipped to go back out and to the battle. And that's why congregational singing, corporate prayer, you know, people might bemoan long prayers and long sermons, but the war is long for the other 168 hours a week. And so we want to pack in as much as we can on each Lord's Day and in the other Bible studies throughout the week, prayer times in the living room, because it's a real battle. People come in discouraged, weary, maybe even tempted to walk away from the faith. And so that's why when we gather together, it can't be a consumeristic at a movie theater. We need to be looking at one another because God may use you to help them continue running the race. And so that, that wartime mentality, I think, helps us realize this is not a game. This is not a social club. Amen. This is a battle for souls. Yeah, amen. So.